0: Well, hello there, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, Ketosavage.com. You are listening to another episode of the Keto Savage Podcast. This one is a little bit different. Crystal and I just got back from a weekend of fun in Tennessee with Ken and Nisha Berry. We went up there for their baby shower. Uh, If you did not know, Nisha is about to have a boy. And we decided to, while we were there, record a little clip, uh, both audio and video. So this is going to be on YouTube if you're listening to it. And. It's going to be our podcast if you're watching it. Um, but basically we dove into some lesser known things about pregnancy, especially as it relates to someone that's following a ketogenic diet. We dove into uh, gestational diabetes. That was definitely a topic uh, that we kind of fleshed out with this podcast. Um, this this audio is a little bit off because we recorded it just in his apartment. Uh, so the audio is not as crisp as it normally sounds on here. But just bear with it because the information is really, really solid. I learned a ton If you or someone you know is uh, about to be pregnant, pregnant, or nursing, this is going to be some incredibly relevant information. So sit back, relax, learn something, and hope you enjoy. And we're live. We got Ken Berry in the building here. Hey, guys. I like, I like this setup, man. Yeah, you got your YouTube man. passing 100,000 yeah. subscribers My over YouTube there. My
1: YouTube diploma. Yeah, sweet,
0: yeah. man. So what is what is the event? Why are we here to get in the first place?
1: So we're having a baby shower for baby boy Barry. And uh, our our closest friends have come from all over the country to celebrate with us and uh, eat some keto food.
0: Can't beat that. What
1: are we having for food? Well, we camp got, cooking? We got bacon. We got... Uh, bison I don't know we got all kinds, all of, good kinds of good stuff
0: yeah yeah we went out to urban grub last night and we got a steak you got a 45 day aged uh
1: 25 ounce porter porterhouse yeah, yeah. pretty good man. it was it a pretty hunk good. of meat
0: it was it made was. me happy yeah so this is the second time I've had Ken on my podcast we're doing like a video slash podcast this will be on both platforms um the first podcast we dove into we talked about your book a lot which just got re-released yeah, the updated version
1: yeah and it's actually out on audible now which i'm it, excited about
0: because yeah, i'm all about yeah. audiobooks i'm so are
1: you spoiled with audible yeah like i can barely read a book anymore i have to listen I, to the book
0: yeah because for me like i don't really have very much time where i could flip through pages but if i'm like driving or sitting in a deer stand even <laughs> that's how i stay awake sitting <laughs> in a deer stand and listen to audiobooks yep. So I'll be listening to your audio book this next weekend while I'm
1: hunting. Gotcha. And I usually listen to the audible first. Yeah. And then I'm like, there's a lot of good information in that book. Then I'll buy the paperback so that I can go through it again and underline and get the references. I like it. Yeah. So I usually buy both different, uh, what what would you call it? Both different uh, types of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: this this version has gotten updated content that the other one did not, right? Five
1: extra chapters fully illustrated, all of my typos I tried to catch but couldn't catch. Victory Belt caught them and fixed them, so I don't think there's any typos in this version. And there's, a lot of the chapters have been updated, but there's five completely new chapters. So, yeah. And I'm where can excited. people
0: go to find out more about the book? And anywhere any anywhere
1: fine books are sold. All right, it's there you not go. just on Amazon anymore, because when I self published that's the only place you can get it. But you can get this at Barnes and Noble, uh, everywhere. Yeah.
0: I like it, I like it. Well, I want to kind of dive into a little bit more like we've both been in the keto space for a while now yeah and there's a whole bunch of controversial topics out there right now we're, we're all bio individuals when it comes down to it. there's a lot of things that like i feel are good rules of thumb that people should <clears throat> probably stick with and you probably get just barrauded with all kinds of questions yeah, every day every day from Which like a medical mind, standpoint
1: but, yeah i don't mind that but uh, obviously we can never give medical advice right. like that and even this podcast or video today uh, I might be a doctor, but today mm-hmm. I'm not your doctor, right? This yeah. is not medical advice, a but disclaimer. We're definitely going to be talking about medical and nutritional uh, concepts and uh, facts but it's not medical advice. Talk to your doctor first. Definitely. yeah.
0: We were talking a little bit last night at dinner about. Gestational diabetes, you yeah. kind of want to dive into that. Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Right yeah, I think, I think it's a huge topic. <clears throat> and I've actually talked to three different uh, OBGYNs. And so that would be someone who's been to medical school and then did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And so they're basically specialists in women's health care, in reproduction and in, in, you know, obviously delivering babies. And uh, I know three right now who are very low carb or keto friendly, one's carnivore. And I said, because I've been thinking about making this YouTube video for a while about gestational diabetes, is there anything that causes gestational diabetes except for eating too many carbohydrates?
0: While pregnant.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so first of all, let's talk about the the definition of gestational diabetes. So if you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes and you get pregnant, then you have diabetes in pregnancy. That's considered a completely different thing by the medical community. Mm-hmm. Gestational diabetes is when you are newly diagnosed with diabetes that you previously didn't have while pregnant. So so many, you know, young healthy women get pregnant, which is a good thing and then during that pregnancy, they develop diabetes. That is gestational diabetes. And so, typically that's diagnosed at about the 26th to 28th week with, with some specialized testing that gets done. Uh, but the problem is, is there's a ton of women who have pre-existing diabetes or pre-diabetes that just haven't been diagnosed because they're young, healthy women mm-hmm. and, and very often slender. You don't think, oh, she's, we should test her for diabetes. But you should, and I want to talk about that on the initial intake labs. When a woman is first, you know, has that positive pregnancy test, goes to the doctor and has her first set of lab tests, there's two tests she should ask for, because most family docs and uh, OBGYNs don't check those two labs initially. And so they could miss pre-existing diabetes, which is vital to know that as soon as possible in the pregnancy. And then I think we should also be looking for gestational diabetes or even early pre-diabetes because even that's been proven in other patient populations to cause harm, to cause damage. Mm -hmm. So why would we wanna wait until a woman is 28 weeks pregnant to diagnose gestational diabetes or pre-diabetes? Why wouldn't we wanna know that from day one? Right? Totally. That makes sense? and so, um, But gestational diabetes is, is increasing, a higher percentage of women are developing gestational diabetes during the pregnancy far more than had it in the 70s and 80s. And there's reason for that, and I think it's a very clear reason. And so these three OBGYNs, or women's healthcare specialists, I said, is there anything that causes gestational diabetes except for eating too many carbs, eating too much sugar, eating too many grains? And all three of them are like, no, there's no magical, hidden, genetic. You know, people might tend to be more insulin resistant. They might tend to be, for it to be easier for them to develop diabetes. But if they don't eat too many carbohydrates, they will not develop gestational diabetes. And we can talk more if you want to about why Why do you care? Why is it a big deal if a woman has gestational diabetes? It's, it's actually quite dangerous for her and for the baby. And there are long-term consequences for the baby, not just short-term during delivery, which is there are very real risks there for a, for a baby of a gestational diabetes pregnancy. But even for the rest of that child's life, as they grow into adulthood, the risk of obesity and, and developing type 2 diabetes on their own is double or triple if their mom had gestational diabetes while they were while they were in the womb
0: that's basically just due to the epigenetic switches that get flipped you on get, you
1: flip all kinds of epigenetic switches when a woman's pregnant her glucose her blood sugar can cross the placenta but her insulin cannot cross the placenta and so the baby very quickly the baby's liver liver and pancreas says whoa there's high blood sugar we got to do something about this right so it down regulates gluconeogenesis and it up regulates insulin production and so in the womb this baby who's never put a bite of food in his or her mouth is hyperinsulinemic to control the blood sugar that's coming from the mom and actually down-regulating gluconeogenesis and using glycogen and other stuff that the baby should be doing and getting used to, they're actually down-regulating that because mom's throwing so much sugar in the mix that the baby's having to produce extra insulin to keep the baby's blood sugar down, right? And so it's very common, my wife, Nisha, is a labor and delivery nurse, and it's very common for women who are morbidly obese in pregnancy or who have gestational diabetes in pregnancy for the baby within the first few hours of life to have low blood sugar. And they have, to, they have to start an IV on this brand newborn baby and give the baby dextrose, which is glucose, to raise their blood sugar. Or they'll give them sugar water and if that doesn't work, they have to start an IV. And so all of these interventions happen to this newborn baby who shouldn't have to experience any of that, if mom would just cut the carbs.
0: So what are some like the symptoms, apart from the high or the low blood glucose when the baby's born, that are pretty much directly correlated to the hyperglycemic? So,
1: think about it. This baby has lots of extra insulin in his system. What does insulin do to me and you if we have too much? makes us gain fat, makes us gain weight, it makes us grow. And so all of our growth plates are closed, so we don't actually get taller and bigger, we just get fatter Mm -hmm. if our insulin's chronically high. For a baby, they still have wide open growth plates, and so what you wind up having is a baby that weighs more than nine pounds, which skyrockets the risk of birth complications. And so the baby can have macrosomia, or a head that's too big for the birth canal, right? Because God designed all this, And it it works perfectly if you eat the proper human diet. But if you're overdosing on carbs every day, then you wind up with a baby that's too big to fit through your birth canal. And that that sends you straight to the operating room for a C-section, right? Another big complication is you get the baby's head out, but then you get what's called a shoulder dystocia, or the shoulder gets stuck because the baby's shoulders are too big because the bones, and even the bony structure's too big because of the chronically elevated insulin. And that can be a real surgical. I mean, a real uh, delivery emergency because you already got the head out. So if you if you go back to op, the operating room, they have to basically reintroduce the head to get to do a C-section. And so you either do that, or there's some um, life-saving maneuvers you can do in pregnancy. But they're, I mean, very invasive though. Very invasive interventions that you don't want to have. Because then a mom winds up with a, with a third or a fourth degree episiotomy, which is where basically the doctor takes a big pair of scissors and cuts the perineum all the way back to try to make room for this baby that's stuck in the birth canal. You don't want that, trust me. You don't want that at all. And so uh, the, the risk of pregnancy-induced hypertension goes up if you're gestational diabetic. The risk of, of C-section skyrockets, because you're gonna probably have a big baby the risk of being on insulin for the mom, because a lot of uh, obstetricians will put the mom on insulin to keep her blood sugar down, she, that's gonna make her gain more weight. So she's gonna wind up with a morbidly obese pregnancy when she didn't have to gain that much weight. Because mm-hmm. if a mom gains too much weight during pregnancy, that actually makes the the birth event increase risk, makes the mom high risk. Anytime a mom is, is considered high risk, then she gets all these extra interventions very often they'll deliver the baby early and usually a baby at 38 weeks it comes out fine but not always and so they'll usually take the baby one or two or even three weeks earlier sometimes even earlier if the gestational diabetes is severe that baby it's not that baby's not ready to come out yet or she would have went into labor Mm -hmm. all this stuff's been designed very elegantly it all works like a charm unless you're poisoning the mom's and the baby's body by eating too many carbohydrates
0: so what makes the the mother more susceptible to have gestational diabetes if she's eating the same diet prior to getting yeah. pregnant? Like, what's the mechanics there?
1: So you can imagine fifty thousand years ago, we're out in we're out in the tundra in the woods and the in the jungle. You, uh, the worst thing that it could happen to a mom is her not getting enough food once she's pregnant. To grow that baby and have a viable delivery and have a viable human that could then grow up and reproduce because that's the whole point of all this right and so as soon as a mom becomes pregnant she becomes much more insulin resistant Mm -hmm. and so every every gram of carbohydrate she eats she's going to turn that into fat that's okay that's fine that's not bad that's not pathology that's normal physiology that's supposed to happen with where the pathology comes in is if the mom's eating too many carbohydrates because you know now, even the official guidelines for a pregnant woman is that she should eat somewhere between 175 grams and 300 grams of carbohydrates every single day of her pregnancy. And if anybody knows anything about low-carb keto, you're like, holy crap, a that's carbs. a lot of carbs. And so that's gonna keep the mom's blood sugar trying to elevate, which is gonna keep her insulin sky high to keep the blood sugar down, but but her insulin can't get to the baby, right? Because of the placental barrier. So the baby's gotta make all this extra insulin, which then not only increases the baby's risk of getting too big during, and so that's a problem during delivery, but even after the baby's born, then the baby's probably gonna have to get an IV, IV dextrose or glucose to raise their blood sugar back up to normal until the liver's like, oh, holy crap, we're not getting all the sugar anymore. We got to start gluconeogenesis, right? And then when the baby starts breastfeeding, hopefully, or bottle feeding, then they'll start to have glucose either produced or it'll be in the milk, right? But the problem is, is that child for the rest of their life is at increased risk for obesity and type 2 diabetes for the rest of their life and so that that's part of the problem with all these adults that you and i work with who are obese and who have pre-diabetes or diabetes who have fatty liver and they eat pretty good
0: they got the short stick when they were they got the, the short room.
1: stick they drew the short straw when they were born because of mom's diet and i don't talk about that a lot because we're definitely not trying to shame moms Right. If you didn't know, you didn't know. I mean, I used to I used to feed my, my my oldest my son. I used to feed him rice cereal, and I thought it was so cute because he would he was basically getting carb coma. Right, he'd yeah. be like just like about to pass out. I thought I was doing a good thing. I didn't know better. I didn't know that that was spiking his blood sugar and spiking his insulin and, and making him have sugar coma. Yeah, I didn't know. And but and so we're not shaming any mom if you've already had the baby. There's no you can't go back in time. Hmm. Don't feel bad about it. Just help other moms understand. You can pay it forward by saying, oh, yeah, I messed up. I mean, with my son and my da- my daughters, I messed up. I didn't know better. But now I'm trying to correct that for future generations, and definitely my kids are going to know.
0: Is there anything in particular like a certain blood glucose range that pregnant women should try and strive
1: for? Yep, and your doctor will talk to you about that when you go in for your initial visit. But you basically want to have normal blood sugars that would be normal for anybody. And while you're pregnant, your doctor will let your blood sugar get a little higher than normal just because you're building a human, right? And it's probably not a big thing if it's 5 or 10 or 15 points higher than it normally would be. What you're trying to avoid is for it to be 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 points higher than it normally would be because that's when all of the, of the potentially disastrous complications start to rear their ugly head.
0: Is there any known benefit whatsoever for a pregnant woman to increase her total carbohydrate count? No, none. None. And
1: that's the thing is all of this is based on expert consensus. Because you would just think, even me and you would think, well, this has got got to have been researched down and just looked at, and looked at, and looked at, no. No, it's basically a bunch of experts got in a room and said, well, we feel like this is probably you know the, what, what women need to be eating.
0: Which is based off of the wrong curriculum in
1: the first place. Exactly right, it's based on a carbohydrate-heavy diet. And so that's why when you when you read a medical article about gestational diabetes, they'll say things like the, the etiology of this is kind of still unclear, it's still unknown why some women develop this. But basically, if you have a woman who's already a little bit insulin resistant, then she gets pregnant, she becomes much more insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. You start feeding that woman 175, 200, 250, 300 grams of carbohydrate a day, she she's going to she's going to develop prediabetes if not gestational diabetes during that pregnancy.
0: Cuz I get so many inquiries from, you know, clients that are on the verge of being pregnant or trying to be pregnant and they're trying to be proactive and see what they can do to yes. improve their health and chances for the for the baby. Yep. And it's like they come from a background of just assuming that in order for them to have a better pregnancy and uh, higher quality milk production, when that time comes, they feel they're supposed to increase their total carbohydrate count.
1: What you definitely need to be increasing is the protein. And, probably total calories and the fat and you do need to eat more calories but it does not need to come from bread or honey buns or fruit or, or drinking lots of orange juice those things don't help your baby at all your baby is made of protein and fat that's what your baby is literally composed of just like you protein yeah. and fat right there is no part of your baby that you can point to and say see this part was made by carbohydrates here that's not true at all. Carbohydrates are energy. So while you're pregnant, your liver can make all the glucose that you need. And remember we said earlier that glucose can cross the placenta. Mm-hmm. So the baby can use that glucose, but after a few weeks of development, your baby's liver can also perform gluconeogenesis and make any sugar, any glucose that that baby needs. And so I'm not saying eat zero carb during pregnancy, which although I think that's perfectly fine and healthy, and uh, Hundreds, if not thousands, of generations of human beings did that, mm-hmm. right? If you were living in Norway or northern Canada 50,000 years ago and you got pregnant, right in in uh, November, what did you eat the entirety of that pregnancy? You ate fatty meat. That's all you ate, and so you're eating essentially zero carbs. You're maybe eating one or two five grams a day, but you weren't eating any fruit. You weren't eating any veg at all because there was none. But yet, I mean, these populations flourished and thrived and had beautiful, healthy babies, eating essentially zero carbs. So I'm not advocating that, but I'm saying that every pregnant woman, when you get pregnant, especially if you're a little overweight, you need to eat under 100 total grams of carbs a day. And if if you're still moving toward gestational diabetes, I think you can 100% completely safely move that down to 50 total grams a day and let that be your upper limit. Either either 100 grams if you're very slender and perfectly healthy and have no signs of gestational diabetes or pre-diabetes, which we need to talk about. But if you're a little overweight or you're starting to move towards gestational diabetes, you, I think it's 100% safe to cut your carb intake to 50 grams total or less a day total. And, and every gram of carbohydrate that you eat needs to be a dark green leafy vegetable or a berry or some kind of really good, healthy, bright, colorful vegetable.
0: So what are the what is the reasoning behind women's cravings for carbs skyrocketing while pregnant?
1: That's probably a, a very protective mechanism that's hardwired in women, right? And so you, you might crave carbs. You might develop a meat aversion or you might not want to eat really what we would call heavy food, which I think is actually the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, Nisha, my wife, for the first trimester, she, she couldn't, I couldn't even cook meat in the house. I had to go out and grill it because the smell of cooking meat made her nauseous, right? Mm-hmm. And she craved all the carbs. But think about it, 50,000 years ago, that would be very protective because you would want it, because back then you were eating five or 10 grams of carbs a day, and you would want to eat 20 or 30 or 40 so you could put on some fat. Because you never knew back then when something disastrous was going to happen and you needed 5 or 10 pounds of fat to get through a very hard period of time. when you. Not were like
0: in the case right now, though. That's
1: not the case now. With the <laughs> McWendy Kings on every corner, there's no shortage of, of being able to put on fat if you need right. fat, exactly. And so I think that women, if, if they are at risk of gestational diabetes, they should probably start at 50 grams a day. And and so you can eat a ton of berries and Nisha would often do that. She would eat a whole little tray of blueberries or raspberries or blackberries or strawberries. And I think those carbs are, are much slower released in your system so you're not gonna have as high of a blood sugar spike. But eating any kind of just regular sugar is you're asking for gestational diabetes eating any kind of grains yeah. any of the grains in any meaningful quantity you're asking for gestational diabetes
0: so a lot of women are probably gonna hear this and they're gonna say okay you know I'm going through this whole meat aversion not craving meats mm-hmm. but I don't want to fill that gap with carbs what are my options
1: yeah and so Nisha wound up eating a ton of seafood because that didn't she didn't have the aversion she ate a ton of eggs So she's getting her protein and her fat from both of those sources, plus great sources of iodine, um, biotin, all kinds of other great things in the seafood and the eggs that your baby needs. She was getting tons of DHA and EPA, the fatty acids that your baby's brain is literally gonna be built from by eating the egg yolks and by eating the the seafood. Um, She was able to eat a little bit of meat, and so whatever kind of fatty meat you can tolerate do that, and I actually wound up making beef tartare for her out of out of raw ribeye. Don't That's freak out. Bad. Oh, it's it was it was delicious, and she could eat that because I didn't cook it. Right, and yeah. she could eat that just fine. And then he, I would I would I would fry her um, chicken breast in in um, um, bacon grease, mm-hmm. breaded with pork panko and a little bit of almond flour, and she, she could not touch the chicken and cut it up, but I but she, could, she didn't mind that cooking. So she was getting tons of good protein and fat from the bacon grease, the pork panko, and then the, a little bit that was in the chicken skin. So I would get chicken thighs with the skin on, debone them, and then slice them up and make three strips out of each chicken thigh.
0: Well, she had two dozen raw oysters last night. Yeah,
1: exactly, she still loves them, yeah. And so a lot of your OBGYNs will say, don't eat anything raw, during, any raw meat during your pregnancy, because you might get an infection. And uh, I don't know if you've, you've heard of Lily Nichols. She's mm-hmm. got a great book about eating when you're pregnant. And actually, the, if you look at the research, you're much more likely to get listeria or salmonella from eating a salad than you are from eating properly prepared raw eggs, um, raw seafood like oysters or sashimi, uh, or even beef tartare. Those are much safer if they're fresh and they smell good and they're not. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. That, you're much less likely to get an infection from that than you are from just eating a salad at a restaurant.
0: Probably don't want to pick it up at like some unknown. Local don't, get street your, market, don't get your don't get your
1: sushi from the gas station. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> you want to get a, uh, get good quality stuff. But those things are. What the baby's built of fat and protein mm-hmm. so yeah you need a lot of that and so you do need to increase your your energy intake or your carb or your calorie intake but you don't need to increase you don't need to increase your carbohydrate intake even though you've got a little more leeway because the average pregnant woman is in her 20s right or early 30s so she's younger she's more metabolically flexible and and she can cope with some carbohydrates But thinking that getting pregnant means you get to eat all the processed carbs, that's just gonna increase your risk of gestational diabetes.
0: Is there like a general rule of thumb as far as how many calories on average a pregnant woman or a nursing woman should increase by their daily amount?
1: It's different based on your age, how much you weighed when you got pregnant, your height, various different things. And your doc will be pretty knowledgeable about how much you need to increase what you eat. But I would just say let your hunger be your guide. If you're hungry, You don't have to worry about fasting when you're pregnant. You don't have to worry about eating one meal a day or two meals a day. I tell pregnant women, if you're hungry, eat. You're building another human. Now, and Lily Nichols also talks about this. You're not eating for two. That's something that we hear a lot, right? You're actually eating for 1.2. That's how you eat. 1.2. Right. So you don't need to double your energy intake to build another human. You need to increase your energy intake by 20 or 25%.
0: What's a, like if you're looking at a pregnant or before she gets pregnant, what her body weight is, what is a healthy weight increase? To expect during yeah. pregnancy. Sometimes,
1: somewhere between 25 and 35 pounds. That's counting all the fluids and right. everything. Right, that's counting everything. And so you are going to put on some fat while you're pregnant. That's just going to happen and that's normal. That's good. That's not bad. It's also, it's normally good for you to become more insulin resistant while you're pregnant. That is a normal protective mechanism so that you put on 5 or 10 pounds of fat. But you don't, I mean, some women gain 80 pounds when or they're more, pregnant yeah. or more. And that's not healthy for the mom and it's not healthy for the baby even though you might have had a good pregnancy outcome what you're doing is you're you're raising the risk of bad things happening
0: Mm -hmm. one of my pet peeves is is having people that are active prior to getting pregnant and then decrease their activity levels you know tenfold as they're pregnant because they're told that they're supposed to limit exercise while growing another human, which is not the
1: case. Most good doctors don't say that anymore, even though that used to be the medical advice. You need to just basically get in bed and stay there for nine months. Uh, But the problem is, is the echo of that lie still echoes through our society. So many moms and grandmothers and mother-in-laws will say, you don't need to go to the gym. You're pregnant. That's dangerous. Absolutely no research backs that up at all. You can stay just as active as you are, and you've probably seen the videos of the CrossFit moms doing- Some of those are kinda sketchy. Cleaning (laughs) jerks, right, while they're nine months pregnant. I don't know if that intensity of exercise is needed. Uh, Your joints are more more loose because of the relaxing and the other hormones. And so I would probably say, let's not be trying to max out or beat PRs, right, while we're pregnant, but can you still do CrossFit? Hell yes can you still go and play basketball or can you go swim can you buy you can do all that stuff you can do and you can lift weights no doubt about it but you just don't need to be trying for new records that you've never met right. before I'd probably say keep it at 70 75 percent your max you can work out hard when you're pregnant and you probably it's probably good for you and the baby to do so but you just don't want to overdo it and by overdo it I mean try to you know hit personal records or something that's not the time for that.
0: Probably best they have that kind of habit in, in place before they get right. pregnant as opposed to Ideal. getting pregnant and then trying to yeah. you know work backwards and yeah. start training really hard.
1: Yeah. And so let's talk about when okay, you just you just peed on a stick. You're knocked up. Congratulations, Congratulations. Right? Now you're gonna go make an appointment with your doctor and they're gonna do some intake blood work. And they check quite a few things, but there's two things that are classically not checked, and that's a hemoglobin A one C and a C peptide. And here's why that matters. If what, if what if you're, okay, so you go in fasting to check this blood work, and they're going to check your blood sugar or your glucose level. But many people with prediabetes or even type 2 diabetes can have a normal fasting blood sugar. And so if all they check is a fasting blood sugar, you could be prediabetic and you have no idea. You don't know because they didn't check.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense,
1: yeah. and so the wor- I think the worst case scenario is for a woman to have undiagnosed pre diabetes or type two diabetes. If you've got type one, you're going to know it by the time you know you're 17 or older. You're going to have figured that out. But you can absolutely have pre diabetes or type two diabetes that has not been diagnosed, and you don't have like red flag symptoms. You don't really know. You just it's just you think that's normal for how much you drink, how much you pee, how much you eat, you don't like, I don't know, I, just, I feel crappy every day, but I thought everybody did. So if you check an A1C and you check a C-peptide, then you're able to detect any degree of pre-diabetes or insulin resistance. So if you've got a normal A1C, but your, your C-peptide's elevated, that means your pancreas is having to work really, really hard to keep your blood sugar normal that's insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, depending on how you want to describe it. And I think the conversation's kind of moving to stop calling that insulin resistance and start calling what it literally is, is hyperinsulinemia. But if you're, if, and so if your C-peptide's even one-tenth of a point elevated, then you are hyperinsulinemic, and that means you're moving down the path towards type two diabetes, immediately you need to cut the carbs back to at least 100, if not to 50, to try to get that under control so that you don't increase your risk of a, of a traumatic birth or a complication or a C-section or that you basically predispose your baby to increase risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes as they grow up. And you can check that
0: before you pee on a stick.
1: That's exactly, yeah, you can check that. And I think every adult should check those two labs so that you know if you have any degree, but that's a perfect time when, you, when you're newly diagnosed pregnant, you go in for your labs, just say, hey doc, would you please add an A1C and a C-peptide to your labs? Cause I, I've got a family history of type two diabetes, who doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a relative with type two diabetes. I, w- I just want to make sure that I'm not moving that direction. And if your doctor says no, I'll tell you, Doctor Barry's ninja hack to get that done. If you'll say, "Well, okay, doctor, uh, could you document in the permanent medical record that I requested those two tests and that you refused to order them?"
0: That'll get getting Talking a different language. In. If you say
1: that, the doctor will order whatever you want him to order or her. Yeah, they'll be like, "Fine. What do you want? What was it again?" And they'll order them. Okay, because no doctor wants in the permanent medical record that you asked for something, you were concerned about your health, you asked for a test and they refused it. Yeah. If anything goes wrong for the next 12 months, they're gonna be fearful of liability, right? And so they're gonna order, it. and you need these two tests. You're not being a, a, an ass yeah. to the doctor. You're literally taking charge of your health. That's what you're doing. And that's why I think doing that little strategy right there is is, is justified. Because you need to know if you're the least bit hyperinsulinemic or pre-diabetic. And so if you are, then you do, because here's the thing, Robert, they don't t- normally check for gestational diabetes until a woman is 28 weeks pregnant. So is there not damage being done that entire twenty-eight weeks?
0: Laying the foundation of damage. You're
1: laying the foundation. You're you're already messing with the epigenetic switches. That baby's DNA is already forming, and their and their their RNA and all the other things that mess with their DNA are forming. So why would you want that to happen in a hyperinsulinemic state or a mm-hmm. hyperglycemic state? You don't want that to happen. You want that to happen in a pristine, perfect physiological environment, and the only way for that to happen is if the mother doesn't have any degree of prediabetes or hyperinsulinemia. And the only way to know if you've got those things is to check those two tests.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. Let's talk about the the current protocol for the oral glucose tolerance test yeah. in pregnant women.
1: Yeah, so typically about 28 weeks your doctor will have you come in and they'll check your blood sugar fasting and then you'll drink what is basically 50 grams of glucose, right? 50 grams and that will, then they'll check your blood sugar an hour after that and maybe two hours after that and then they'll use those numbers to say either, oh, you have gestational diabetes. They can make the, the initial, if, if you're like, if your fasting is above 140, we can say, oh, you have it, you have it. Or an hour after you drink the drink, if it's above 200, you have it, you already have it. Okay, and and sometimes you can get an equivocal number. It's like, well it's high, but it's not high enough to call it gestational diabetes. So we're gonna have you come back in a week or two and we're gonna do a three hour glucose and you usually drink 75 grams for that one and they'll check your blood sugar fasting then at one, two, three hours.
0: But if you're keto, and then you go and take this test, you're more likely to have a higher glucose rate. Yeah,
1: some, some people think that. And um, I, I think Lily Nichols talks about that in her That's book as well. Case. Well, I think what most women, and so if you're eating super low carb, then yeah, you might overreact to the glucose because it's it's literally like slamming down a 20 ounce Coke.
0: Like if you're carnivore or something. Right,
1: if you're carnivore. And so I think most women, if they, if they get pregnant, you can go ahead and safely ramp up the keto friendly carbs you can start eating more leafy greens. You can start eating more berries. Uh, you can even have, you know, you can, I mean, you, you, you don't want to be eating a lot of potatoes and crap that are just empty, starchy carbs, but anything that's bright and colorful, you can kind of loosen up a little bit because your body does want you to gain five or 10 pounds of fat. That's, that's protective. Um, but And so most women have already found out they're pregnant. And if you're watching this and you just, you know, the stick just turned purple or blue or whatever, you can start eating more berries and start eating more kale and collards and Brussels sprouts and, and asparagus, broccoli, cauliflower, because... Not Pop-Tarts. Not Pop-Tarts, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Not bread, not potatoes, because those are just going to spike your blood sugar and not give you any nutrition whatsoever. But then that way, when you go and do the one hour at 28 weeks, your body's getting, you're getting 50 grams of carbs a day. So that's not that big of a deal. And you're not going to have a false positive on the glucola or the glucose tolerance test.
0: Now, if you were... A biohacker, for instance, and you had like a continuous glucose monitor, and you could take those readings in. Can that bypass the need? It for should case? be
1: able to. Um, we were not able to do that because Nisha wants to, to deliver in a birth center with midwives. Mm-hmm. She didn't want. She didn't want to be in the hospital at all. And still, they're they're very nervous about. Obviously, they don't want a big baby to be born in the birth center. Right. You don't want that. You don't want a shoulder dystocia or a head that's just too big because that could be disastrous because it's, you know, it's 10 minutes to get you to the hospital. You might not have that much time. And so they're very particular. And so they, they absolutely demanded the one hour, even though Nisha was wearing a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor, right? And, and she could like print out her, her blood sugar every five minutes for the last month and show them which yes, that's much more reliable. I mean, that's a much more sensitive test for Mm -hmm. for gestational diabetes than checking a, a one hour glucose tolerance at 28 weeks. Like, Nisha, if she had had any degree of prediabetes, it would have shown up immediately on the CGM measurements, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, but they, they, they were not woke enough to understand that, and so they said, I don't care how much CGM data you show me, you still gotta do that, or you'll have to deliver it to the hospital. But most uh, OBGYNs, they, under- they still understand the physiology of this, and they understand that if your CGM strip for the last month has been pristinely perfect, they'll let you out of the glucola most of the time. They'll be like, that's, that's, because it's a, it's not, this is not, an, uh, again, you would think there'd be a ton of research showing that the, the glucola, the one hour glu- glu- glucose tolerance is just set in stone. Absolutely reliable, not at all. Not at all. And in the American College of Obstetric and Gynecologies, they have like bulletins about each different topic of pregnancy. And in their gestational diabetes bulletin, they still say this is the best we've got. This is the best test we know of currently. And uh, but even more and more OBGYNs are starting to go to A one Cs. Check that. See peptides. And uh, that's actually one of the ways we can. They monitor a baby is to check a cord blood C peptide. And so, a lot of obstetricians, unlike other doctors, actually know what a C-peptide is because we check it in the newborn baby to see if they're hyperinsulinemic. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Just totally out of curiosity, what was the motivation for going the birth center route as opposed to the traditional?
1: Well, and most moms, if you're not aware of this, you should be. In a hospital birth setting the risk of complications is much higher than it is in a birth center with a midwife because they they do all these extra unnecessary interventions. And so they're liable to break your bag of waters much sooner than they should have. Trying to initiate labor, that's that's an unnatural act. That's not something that happened to us in the wild 50,000 years ago. Your water broke when it was time for your water to break. Yeah. Right? Your body's got that. It doesn't need help. And so but a lot of cuz doctors are on a time schedule. They mm-hmm. got a family at home waiting on them. They got they got office hours, they got patient scheduled. They need to get this labor going not for the mom's health, not for the baby's health, but for their calendar and their schedule. And I I used to practice, you know, I'm family practice. So I trained extensively in Tennessee in obstetrics and I and I seriously considered doing an extra year fellowship and delivering babies is part of my practice. But the small town I went to, the hospital didn't wanna pay the malpractice insurance. And so I just stopped doing obstetrics. But I was trained pretty broadly and deeply in obstetrics during my residency. And I know this, there's no reason to ever break a mom's water unless the baby doesn't look good And you you need to get the baby out then yeah sure break the water but just breaking the water to initiate labor is an unnatural artificial intervention and that actually increases your risk of a c-section there's research that shows that what
0: are the other like just play by play in a traditional hospital setting what what do you expect what happens
1: so ideally a woman would go into actual labor before she goes to the hospital. But often that's not the case because we're dealing with the, the, uh, the obstetrician's schedule. He's got vacation coming up in two weeks, He's uh, you know, whatever. So he's gonna schedule an induction, which is when we start an IV and we give you medicine called Pitocin to start artificial contractions.
0: Sounds totally natural.
1: Right. It's completely unnatural. It increases your risk of C-section. It increases your your risk of all these complications. And so when you start Pitocin, you also have to monitor the mom for liability reasons. And so you start watching every single heartbeat of the baby, and you start watching the baby's heart rate with the contractions on mm-hmm. the strip. And if you've ever had a baby, you've seen that strip. Problem is, is that we start looking for decelerations in the baby's heart rate. Right,
0: we got a pregnant woman in the building.
1: Come on in here, Nisha, and tell him. Tell him I know what I'm talking about. Here's Nisha. <laughs> he knows what he's talking
0: about. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, we got two guys here talking, yeah, about, yeah, pregnancy. Yeah, talking about, like, about pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Talking about pregnancy, right? The thumbnail needs to be. And Nisha. so, how
1: often, <laughs> Nisha, did you see it in the hospital where the baby was having what we would call decelerations? Normal or abnormal? Right, but who knows, right? Because it's very, it's normal. I mean, you Depending baby on what phase of labor? Yeah. Exactly, baby boy Barry may be having a deceleration right now. It, it means nothing. But when you see that and it's printed in black and white on that piece of paper, now there's liability. Are you
0: talking mm-hmm. about how the strip basically causes more problems than Exactly, right. Helps?
1: Yeah. First of all, there's no research that exists that shows that that minute-by-minute minute monitoring improves outcomes. Mm-hmm. There's no research that shows that. In fact, it may do the opposite. It probably increases the risk the of intervention and the of risk of C-sections. Yeah. Exactly. And so, I'm sure there's women out there going, what the hell, what? You mean there's no research that shows that that monitoring helps my baby? Nope, there's none. But the liability risk for hospitals and doctors now, that they won't, they you can't even labor a woman without that. Yeah. Because it looks like, it looks very sciencey to monitor that minute by minute. And so if a baby has too many early D-cells, all of a sudden that's a high risk and we need to break the water and we need to screw this thing into the top of your baby's head. So we can see the exact heart rate because sometimes the baby moves and you lose it. And then also we're, we're much more likely to go back to the operating room for a C-section if these D-cells, and the problem is the research is terrible on all this stuff. It's, sometimes they're healthy. The, absolutely, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. But
0: it's, it's more likely that they're not
1: helpful. Exactly, yeah. right. And so you're going to, and you know, the C-section rate should be one or two percent. Out of every yeah. hundred births, and currently in the U.S., I think it's somewhere between twenty and thirty percent, depending on the hospital and depending on the doctor. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. But there are in other countries where the, they just know better than this. Like in the in the EU, that their their C-section rate is way lower than ours, and their outcomes—healthy babies, healthy mamas—just as good as ours, if not better.
0: Our infant and mom mortality rates are like higher than third world countries. Yep,
1: absolutely. In the U.S. In yeah. the U.S., yeah, and people don't realize that they think we've got this modern, sciencey-looking stuff, and all that does is increase the risk of a C-section and increase the risk of complications.
0: I think Chris and I are gonna have our baby out in the woods somewhere yeah. at the farm. Absolutely, <laughs> at the absolutely. farm. You know, yeah, it's
1: not a bad plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, one of the preeminent midwives in the world, Anna Mae Gaskin, lives in Tennessee, and uh, she has delivered how many thousand babies? Over 1,000 Over 1,000 herself, and has had one or two that needed a C-section. Yeah, but they still, the outcomes were good. The outcomes She's still not good. not had a bad outcome. Yeah, she not a single, uh, just delivering the baby at the farm, which Ooh. is where she lives, in, in Summertown, Tennessee. And so, any doctor who even tries to pretend like that this 20% or 30% C-section rate is necessary and needed, it's bullshit. You're yeah. just doing that for your schedule. You got to get that baby out so you can either get home or get back to work.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah. A little bit crazy. We're running out of time. Uh, we're no, we're so being called time. Yeah. All right.
0: You wanna, well, we're in I'll I'll right time we can probably end it right now. This is pretty goodness. good. You want to? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Alicia, you, you have any day. final words since you made a special appearance you can, here? Get in here. Subscribe. <laughs> Hit that thumb and leave a comment. You can be keto and pregnant at the same time, right? Absolutely. And it's right. super healthy and um, going to keep you really nice and cute. There you go. Well, we are signing out we'll probably have to do it we'll do a follow-up <laughs> podcast sure when the baby's born yeah yeah we'll have the special guest baby barry on here yeah so. you make making you screen go. bloody murder that'll be fine yeah everybody's airpods <laughs> for anybody that hasn't subscribed or know ken barry you should but where do you, where do they go
1: um i've got a little youtube channel if you search dr barry on youtube i think you'll find me I do a lot of work on Facebook, again, just search for Dr. Barry. I've got a Twitter, I've got an Instagram, I've got a YouTube uh, that I mentioned. I've got the book called Lies My Doctor Told Me where I talk about other lies and other myths that doctors believe and they they believe them and they, they have good intentions. But if you don't know the actual truth, you can wind up causing harm.
0: Perfect, perfect. Go check it out, go learn, do it the right way. See you next time.
1: See you guys.